Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. My last sermon, we finished up the fourth of five discourses. The discourse on the church. And as is Matthew's pattern, after each discourse, we get a section of narrative. In our last section of narrative, we had Jesus trying to get away from the crowds. We had him wanting to spend time alone with his disciples, wanting to pour into them to make sure they understood the events that were coming. But now things are headed exactly where Jesus told them that they would be going. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus from that time began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He had to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. That's not the end of the story, though. On the third day, he would rise again. told them that more than once in that last section of narrative. And now this section of narrative from 19.1 through 23.39 takes us back to the crowds. He's back to the spotlight. And ultimately, it'll be taking us into Jerusalem where we'll get the fifth and final discourse that leads to his, the passion narrative the cross. And unsurprisingly, at the beginning of this narrative section, we immediately see rejection and resistance coming. It's going to amplify as we move forward. In Matthew 19, 1-6, when Jesus had finished these words... He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, uh, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We're going to look today at conspiring testers, at a calculated test, and then Jesus taking them to creational truths. To answer their questions. So let's begin with these conspiring testers in verse 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking. At the end of every one of Jesus' major discourses and the beginning of the new narrative sections, Matthew uses some form of when Jesus had finished these words. Five different times, almost the exact same thing. And immediately you see a shift in the narrative that's moving you, progressing you along. And that's this, this time we're seeing that where he's no longer spending time alone with the disciples, but he's going to he's leaving the less populated, less prominent Galilee. And where does he go here in our narrative? He doesn't go straight to Jerusalem. He goes to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Jesus' time of withdrawal and retreat has come to an end. Passover was nearing, and Jesus intended to re-energize the masses. Jesus intends to have the crowds electrified with excitement when he triumphantly enters Jerusalem later on in Matthew. But how does going to Judea accomplish that goal? 
Well, not only was Judea more populated than Galilee, meaning he could obviously minister to more people and cause more of a stir, but no one passed through Galilee to get to Jerusalem for Passover. If you know your geography, you have Galilee, and what's right above Galilee? Samaria. And then you get into Jerusalem. So everybody, if you, you don't go to Galilee because you're, if you're in Galilee, you're going to go to Judea and then go north so you don't have to set foot in Samarian territory. So there's no traffic going through Galilee, but there's going to be a ton of traffic going through Judea. So everyone was headed to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover and they went through Judea and by strategically placing himself in the normal path of this pilgrimage, Jesus would not only be able to minister to the many residents of Judea but also to the countless Jews traveling through as they made this annual Passover trip to Jerusalem. So you have large crowds following him and him healing them there. And as we've seen throughout Matthew, and as common sense would tell you, that's going to be an endless cycle, isn't it? Jesus heals, and the crowds grow. And as the crowd grows, more people seek healing. And the more people who Jesus heals, the more word spreads, and both desperate people who have physical ailments and curious people who are amazed by the spectacle flock around this miracle-working prophet. And... As usual, when Jesus draws a crowd, the Pharisees take notice, don't they? Every time Jesus draws a crowd, the Pharisees take notice. But not as religious seekers, not as admiring followers, or even as curious observers. They come as conspiring testers. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, what? Testing him and asking, what's their problem? Well, They're jealous. That's the big thing. Large crowds followed it. Why do you think they hated the attention Jesus was getting from the crowds? Easy answer. Because the Pharisees wanted the attention of the crowds for themselves. Attention and prestige was the functional God of the Pharisees. Jesus had warned about it in the Sermon on the Mount, hadn't he? Remember in 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is stealing their thunder. They're no no longer being looked at as the, the great authorities that everybody should look to. And they don't like that. This warning went unheeded from Jesus, and speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said in 20, says later in 23, 5-7, They do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the places of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. And Jesus was getting more attention from the crowds than they were. Because of Jesus' great popularity, the Pharisees envied Jesus to the point of hatred. Later on in Matthew 27, 18, it says that Pilate knew that because of envy they had handed him over. He was even betrayed because of their envy of the attention that he was getting. So Jesus having large crowds following him, and then those crowds growing more and more as he does more and more miracles, he knows what's going to happen, and it happens. The Pharisees get jealous. But not only are they jealous, they're rebellious. He healed them there, verse 2, and some Pharisees came to him testing and asking. These Pharisees are not honest skeptics. They're not 
They're, they're hard-hearted rebels. They're testing Jesus. Think about this. Despite the miraculous powers that are on display, he's healing everybody that's coming around, and the Pharisees' response to that is to come around and try to discredit him. He's healing in a way that's never been heard of before. Jesus' miracles are more in number and power than all of the Old Testament prophets combined. Isaiah's messianic prophecies, it pointed to exactly the kind of miracles that Jesus was performing. Now I have a list of those in your notes that you can go back and read. It's exactly the kinds of things that Jesus is doing. Jesus had quoted from those various texts from Isaiah to encourage the heart of John the Baptist when he was in prison. Remember when in 11, 5 through 6, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense because of me, who doesn't stumble over my ministry. Well, these Pharisees were not so blessed. They did stumble over his ministry. They did take offense. The more miracles Jesus performed, the more angry and envious they became because they knew that it was these miracles that earned the admiration and attention of the crowds. And they couldn't do them. And Jesus was going to continue doing them, so if we can't stop him from doing the miracles, we have to discredit him in some way. People from all over Palestine and Syria, from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan had followed Jesus from early in his ministry largely on account of his miraculous works, we see in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Jesus cleanses a man from Capernaum of an unclean spirit and immediately news about him went out everywhere into the surrounding districts of Galilee. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and this news spread throughout all the land. He healed the Galilean man of leprosy and news was spreading even farther. So that, that's the problem for them. The news is spreading and they can't handle the attention that he's getting. Later we're going to see that it, I, 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 this contrast when he gets in the temple and he cleanses the temple. It says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. It made them mad. Indignant, like amplified. It not just made them mad. Indignant's higher than made them mad. They were jealous and rebellious. And no amount of signs, no amount of wonders, and no amount of evidence would ever be enough. Guys, we will never win the affection of hard-hearted rebels by the good things we do. If you're thinking, I'll just win them over if they just knew me better. No, they hate our Christ. You won't win them. Trying to be winsome to win them won't work, ever. Their jealous hearts drove them, drove them to rebellion against what they knew to be true. So when the Pharisees hear that Jesus has drawn another large crowd due to his healing ministry, they devise a calculated test. Verse 3b, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? We see clearly in this text that this question is really a test. But we also need to consider how that this test is a calculated test designed to at least reduce Jesus' popularity, but perhaps even getting killed. Uh, it's a test designed as a question. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, not everyone who is asking questions is searching. Not everyone who wants you to explain your reasoning is even open to the possibility of you being right. 
We do well to recognize the testing question before engaging in an argument or a debate with people. You need to understand their motives. You need to try to discern the heart that's going into it, don't you? The Pharisees were always asking Jesus questions that weren't really questions. The question is explicitly identified as the, Pharisee, uh, as the Pharisees testing him and asking. This word for testing, it's trying to trap, attempting to catch in a mistake, to tempt, to test for the purpose of making one err or to sin or to fail. We saw the same word when the Pharisees asked for a sign in chapter 16.1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up to him testing Jesus and they asked him to show a sign from them. No sign he provided was going to be good enough. And now no answer he gives is going to be acceptable. They're not trying to learn from Jesus. They aren't curious about his opinion on the issue. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't come to Jesus in hope of finding truth for themselves but in hope of finding falsehood in him. And this time they came up with an, an especially calculated test. I call this question especially calculated because it could accomplish two despicable outcomes. One, reduce Jesus' popularity. And two, getting killed. But let's, first let's consider how it would reduce Jesus' popularity. The tradition of the elders was always developing. Remember, they're trying to create a culture, so they're trying to debate the law and, and find out what's binding and loosing on conscience. And they're, they don't think they're there yet, because when they finally get there, they believe the Messiah will come. So they're always trying to get, and they think once they've put something in their pocket, they've arrived at something, they finally got it settled. They're always trying to do that. Some questions were firmly established and universally agree on, and some were still hotly debated. Well, the issue of divorce... It was hotly debated about 20 years before this took place. Hillel and Shammai had debated it 20, 30 years beforehand. Okay? And now, one position had won the day. Think about where our culture is on birth control, slavery, or women voting. I, I picked some on purpose that you're like, well, nobody disagrees with those, on those things. Everybody has the same opinion. Well, those were hotly debated things in our past. And now everybody's, I mean, it's taboo. You can't go the other direction or everybody's going to be on you, right? If you disagree with the status quo on, on birth control, slavery, or women voting, oh my goodness, you're a misogynistic bigot, aren't you? Right? There aren't too many people on the other end of those debates. And that's the same here. It was an old debate, but for the most part, it was a settled debate. The debate centered around how to interpret Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The word indecency literally means nakedness. But so often it's used for uncleanness, indecency, some shame or disgrace in her. And if he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and the later husband turns against her or hates her, scorns her, doesn't love her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she can't come back to the first husband's house. That's what the law, that's, the, that's it. The first husband's decision is said to be based on his finding some indecency in the woman, while the second husband, it just says he disliked her. He turned against her. So the main area of rabbinic dispute was not over the legitimacy of divorce. Everybody took that for granted. But the permissible grounds for divorce. And that debate was a choice between those two traditions. The popular Hillelite tradition 
and the unpopular Shemite position. Hillel and Shammai, those two rabbis who lived in the early first century, had debated this. And the Shammai positions were stricter than the Hillel positions on basically everything. It was said that the school of Shammai binds and the school of Hillel looses. Does that sound familiar? Binding and loosing in the synagogues. They're always trying to do that. You have the stricter school trying to say, hey, they're more prone to binding conscience. And you have the more liberal school, they're more prone to loosening consciences and saying you're able to do what you want to do. Like right and left, right? Liberal, conservative. And they're debating over those things. What's Jesus say that he's going to do? His church is going to do. Whatever we bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. He's going to correct where they're wrong on everything. So we can see what's about to get set up. When you understand the, the, how this works, we just had that introduced in chapter 18, that the church would do this, and now we've got the debate where they already have settled something about binding and loosing, and now they're coming to Jesus to ask His opinion, to test Him. So... On this one, it's already settled, and the Hillelite tradition has won. Rabbi Hillel, who died about 20 years before Jesus began his ministry, taught that a man could divorce his wife for the most trivial of reasons. He reasoned that the second man in Deuteronomy 24 just decided that he didn't like, he didn't like the woman anymore, and that was enough. Liberal is truly an understatement for the position. For any reason, really did me, for any reason at all. Uh, your wife made a bad meal, she burned it, divorce. She too much salt, you could divorce her. If she took her hair down in public, divorce. You could, if she spoke to another man, even in passing, and you didn't like it, it made you jealous, you could divorce her. If she spoke ill of your mother, her mother-in-law, I mean, everybody would have been divorced, right? But if you spoke ill of, of, of the man's mother, well, you could divorce her. They interpreted the hates her like, you know, when Leah saw that she was hated, it means loved less than Rachel. So if you simply found a woman that you preferred over your current wife, you're like, hey, I, you, know, I've, I, you know, it's been nice and all. I've enjoyed being with you and, I mean, you've been fine, but I like her better. Guess what you could do? Divorce. Perfectly acceptable. Um, even things out of her control, like infertility, was viewed as grounds for divorce. Josephus summed up the sentiment well when he nonchalantly wrote, At that time I sent away my wife, being displeased with her behavior, and then I took a wife of a woman from Crete. Uh, commenting on Deuteronomy 24, Josephus adds, The man who wishes to divorce his wife for whatever cause, and among people many such may arise, he, might just give her a, he must just give her a certificate in writing. Sirach, one of the books, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, apocryphal books, it says, If she does not accept your control, divorce her and send her away. Basically, if she won't follow your leadership, get rid of her. Glad we kicked the apocryphal books out, aren't y'all? Sadly, this marriage dishonoring opinion had won the day. It was by far the most popular view. And as a result, first century Israel women were bought, sold, and traded basically like property. And divorce was tragically beyond common. It was epidemic. Their twisted, selfish interpretations of the Mosaic law was used to justify their lust for other women, their unfaithfulness to their covenant commitments. 
But there was still a majority that held to the Shammite tradition. The rabbis of the Shammai school took the phrase, he has found some indecency. Remember what that literally means? He had found some nakedness in her. Uh, as the single reason for divorce. As they understood it, that could only be referring to adultery. If he found out that she had been unfaithful to him and uncovered her nakedness before another man, then they they could divorce it. They argued against the traditions, uh, the translations of uncleanness or indecency or shame or disgrace, and they said those were just liberal excuses to make allow the dishonest student of the law to twist the word to allow him to do whatever he wanted to do. You ever seen people that just want to twist the Bible to give them license to do whatever they want to do? Shamite said, that's how they're doing with divorce. And I I tend to agree with them, don't y'all? Marriage for the Shamite was a covenantal obligation to both the woman and her father to protect and provide for his wife. Unfortunately, the Shamites were looked down on as narrow-minded, unrealistic idealists who just didn't understand the real world. This view was considered as constraining and unfair to men who were trapped with undesirable women. And I mean, you know, in our words today, well, God would want me to be happy, wouldn't he? This view was despised by the most men at the time, just like the pro-life position is despised by progressive women today. It was that despised. Anybody that held to that Shamite tradition, if you let that out, Man, that was a blight on you. He's, oh, he's one of those pro-lifers. And, when I, and I, I want to make clear, when I say progressive, I'm using their terminology. What I really mean is regressive, morally bankrupt, murderous women. That's what I mean, to be clear. Okay, I don't really mean progressive. That's not progress, being able to kill your baby. But the way they despise anybody that holds the other view, most men despise somebody that holds the Shamite view. Well, the, the Pharisees had a whammy card here. They were, there were Pharisees present at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus refuted the tradition, their tradition, where Jesus taught against the Hillelite tradition. Remember that in Matthew 5, 31-32? It has been said. Who's it been said by? Hillel. What was said? Whoever sends away his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's that. That's the only requirement. You want to send her away, give her a certificate, and that's fine. It's been said. We saw who said it. Everybody's saying it. And Hillel, that's what he taught. But, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity or or fornication makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, that sounds pretty Shamite to me, don't y'all? That's what he had taught. He had taught that despised position in the Sermon on the Mount. And they knew it. In their minds, they had Jesus right where they wanted him. They fully expected Jesus to take the same stance that he had taken earlier, thus making him look like a right-wing extremist. They wanted to make him look like one of those guys. That's what they're trying to do. But if he aligned himself with a more popular Hillelite tradition, then they could use his past words against him and say, well, didn't you say back in the Sermon on the Mount... I mean, they could have put up, pulled up an old video clip on Twitter or something. So, hey, look! Look what you said back here. He'd either be seen as a right-wing extremist or as a convictionless flip-flopper. Both of them are going to limit his popularity. And that's what they want to do, isn't it? For a modern example of what this was like, consider the gay mirage versus the traditional marriage debate today. Settled about 20 years ago, right? 
Back, until 20 years ago, until 15 minutes ago in American history, you know, Obama, the first time he ran, ran against gay marriage, right? Like, just 15 minutes ago, right? 15 years, literally. In the mainstream culture, though, today, including the media, the pop culture world, the sports world, and basically all the influential politicians of our day, gay marriage has won the day. And not only that, but the whole LGBTQ, LMNOP agenda has won the day today, hasn't it? And if you're against it, what are you? A right-wing extremist, right? You're one of those bigoted homophobes, aren't you? Very similar. But many conservative politicians have made comments in the past that are out of step with the LGBTQ, LMNOP agenda like 15 years ago. And we've seen this happen, happen, haven't we? People like Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper or AOC or one of the wild women from The View engage such conservatives, be it Mike Johnson, the new professing Christian speaker of the House who has espoused traditional marriage views in the past, or Donald Trump or whomever, and they ask, what do they ask every time they get a chance? Well, I might, I might paraphrase it. They came to him testing him, asking, is it lawful for a person to marry any other person of any gender at all? Same kind of thing. They come to them asking, testing. They're trying to, they want you to lose popularity and get you and make you look like some sort of bigoted right-wing extremist. It's exactly the same thing that's going on here. And what have most of our so-called conservative leaders done? Him hauled around and flip-flopped and been a bunch of cowards. Well, that's just settled law now. That was Donald Trump's response. That's called cowardice, just to let y'all know. If you want to use the French, cowardice, right? It, it's pathetic, okay? If they say no, uh, it's not okay, then they're right-wing extremists, Nazi homophobes. And if they say yes or dodge the question, then they've ostracized a portion of their base and they've made them look weak. So it, it, the Pharisees have this, this same sort of conspiring, calculated question to limit Jesus' popularity. That's one aspect of what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus here. But uh, on an even more sinister front, there's an outside chance that they might just get him killed. You say, well, how's he going to get him killed? Well, the crowds aren't going to surround him and stone him to death over his position on marriage. But the crowds are not the only factor in this equation. Remember where these these events are taking place. Who remembers? I'm just going to stand here until somebody says it. It's in the text. There you go. We got a nine-year-old here saying it, right? In, in Judea. And who is the tetrarch over Judea? Herod Antipas. And in our last narrative section, it began with Jesus withdrawing from the crowds when he heard that Herod Antipas had had John the Baptist beheaded. And why was John the Baptist beheaded? Because he condemned Herod's unlawful marriage to Herodias, who he had seduced away from his brother Philip. Divorce and remarriage was the very reason John the Baptist, the forerunner, Christ had been executed. And now you got Jesus with a huge crowd around, and you're asking him about divorce, and you get him talking about divorce and remarriage, who's he indicting if he comes down on a hard position here? Herod Antipas, who already has a history of killing prophets who come out against divorce. Right? 
The Pharisees hoped to get Jesus talking about divorce and marriage and laws related to it. John the Baptist, who, who baptized Jesus and preached basically the same message, had boldly spoken out against Herod by name, and they were cut from the same cloth. They're of the same spirit. It seemed reasonable that if John the Baptist would, would speak out this boldly, Jesus would do the same thing, and we could be shed of him. Even more than making him lose popularity, we're going to get him killed. What does Jesus say? Well, he returns to creational truths in verses 4 through 6. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. The Pharisees were trying to back Jesus in a corner, but Jesus didn't feel the pressure. Hey, when, let me tell you something. When you're right, don't feel pressure. Don't be intimidated. If you're right, stand there. Jesus knew he was right, and he turned the tables. His face didn't go flush. He didn't get nervous. He didn't start twiddling his fingers. He spoke directly to them. And what does he say? Well, he takes them from tradition right back to Scripture. He answered and said to them, Have you not read? They asked Jesus a question that wasn't a question, and Jesus returns the favor. This question was more of a burn than a question. He asked them, Have you not read? Well, this is deep-cutting sarcasm. Think about this. The Pharisees prided themselves on being experts of the Scriptures, right? And defenders and authorities on the Scriptures. They're, we're the guy. You want to know the Scriptures come to us. And Jesus asked them, Have you not read the very first page? That's what He says. Well, I mean, Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter 1. Verse 27 and chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. He's saying, guys, you don't have to have the whole Old Testament memorized. Did you read the first page? That's what he's saying. They were already Jesus' enemies. They already hated him and wanted to destroy him. Them, but Jesus does not try to win them with his winsomeness. He hits them with a serrated edge of bitter sarcasm here, doesn't he? Well, that's just not very Christ-like. Guys, it's Christ who did it. It's very Christ-like. You know how I know? Jesus did it. He hit them. They must, this is MacArthur. He says, They must have winced in anger as Jesus said to them in effect, Do you teachers of Scripture know what it says? Our Lord's remark was like walking up to a Shakespeare expert and saying, Have you read Romeo and Juliet? Or, or uh, a constitutional lawyer and saying, Hey, guys, you ever heard of uh, the First Amendment? You ever read that? That's what it's like. Some, somebody that's wrote tons of books and said, Hey, you know, I heard about this new thing. It's called the ABCs. You ever heard of it? It's really cool. This is a burn here. And the Reformation slogan, Sola Scriptura, it has a great proponent in King Jesus, doesn't it? The Pharisees, these experts in the law, held to their traditions, sometimes very new traditions, as if they were the old-time way. Does that sound familiar? People are like, well, how can you not be for this? For things that just were codified into law like 10 years ago. 
You know, you're on the wrong side of history. Guys, most of the time, if you're on the wrong side of history, you're on the right side of history. They, they twist things around. You're on the right side of God, and He's going to win. I've, I've read the whole book, haven't y'all? While ignoring, they, they held to their traditions while ignoring the timeless Word of God. When people try to bind you according to their tradition or claimed that they are loosed from some obligation and they cite some tradition, always, unashamedly, go back to thus saith the Lord. Always. Always go back to have you not read. Jesus has hit them with this sola scriptura repeatedly. When they attempted to call him out because his disciples violated their tradition, their tradition by not washing their hands uh, before they ate, what did Jesus say? Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God has said, honor your father and mother, uh, and uh, whoever speaks evil of their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would have been helped to you should be given to God. He He doesn't have to honor his father and mother. By this you've invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Rightly, you hypocrites, did Isaiah say of you... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus came hard at error and direct at error every time. God has a message for the world. I'm going to tell you something. Part of it is y'all need to behave. You know that? That's part of the message. That's exactly what repentance is. Repentance is turn from your wicked ways. And the other part is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when we come short. Jesus was appalled by their loveless tradition. He was appalled by them discarding their wives like worthless, worn-out assets. Just like he was appalled by the worthless tradition of dishonoring their parents by refusing to do their duty toward them. God insists that we do right toward those that are weaker and that need us and that we have obligation and duty toward. Part of the message is observe all things whatsoever Christ commands. He's returning us and binding and loosing rightly. We must repent if we want the blessing of God on our lives. The law is not gone. The law just can't save you. You've got to have Jesus who perfectly kept the law. But the law still matters. Very important. You can't have the blessing of God on your life without it. He returned them from tradition, what they thought or what society was saying, what was popular in the moment, right back to what does God say, unashamedly and without apology. And He took them not only from tradition to Scripture... But he took them from post-fall reality to pre-fall intention. Notice in verse 4. He who created them from the beginning. The starting place for the Pharisees was their desire to make Scripture say whatever allowed them to do whatever they already wanted to do. How can I justify getting out of this marriage that I no longer want? The modern day God would, make me, God would want me to be happy. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you this. God wants you to be holy. And if you are holy, you'll be happy as a byproduct. But we don't aim for happy because then we'll do what our corrupt hearts think will make us happy and we'll never be holy. And when we do the thing that makes us happy that's not holy, it will lead to our destruction and then you ain't going to be happy. You aim for holiness and you trust that God will turn it out for your good as you follow Him and believe His ways above yours. That's not where they were. 
Fallen men always want to fix their circumstances instead of asking God to fix their heart. If I could just change my circumstance, I could be happy. No, if you could just change your heart, you would be happy. It's not your circumstances that's the problem. It's your heart that's the problem. Jesus calls them back to God's design in making two sexes and in His design for marriage. From the post-fall reality to the pre-fall intention. What is His intention in the beginning? Well, it says His intention in distinction. God made them male and female. Oh, look, right here, we've got a binary, don't we? In the beginning, God made them male and female. The whole Heinz 57 of other genders, they ain't no more. That's it. Male and female. And not only a binary, but a binary with clear distinctions. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to the opinion of of an actual sitting judge on the Supreme Court, you don't have to be a biologist to know what a woman is. Amen. I'm going to hit some things that are controversial today, but absolutely would not have been at the time of Christ. He made them male. What, What is that? God created Adam the first image bearer, and he placed him in the garden, didn't he? The task of imaging God is a lofty one. It's called the dominion mandate. We're supposed to rule over and subdue the earth, Genesis 1.28. To keep and till and cultivate what's already subdued, 2.15. And to bring the whole world under subjection, under our authority. And in order to do that, there can't just be one of two of them. You have to multiply and fill image bearers. Having kids, it's a good thing, Genesis 1.28. For a short time, Adam was alone in the garden. But it wasn't long until Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I am really glad he did that. Aren't y'all? This word for suitable, it's neged. It's the Hebrew. And it means that which is opposite. It means that which corresponds. It carries the idea of that which fits perfectly in what is lacking in you alone. That you're not all you need to be. There's some things you're not. And I'm going to make a corresponding part of humanity. And when you've got the male and the female and you put it together, you've got the image of God on display. That we need male and we need female. And we need them to be who they are and fulfill God's intention and created purpose for them. Men are, women are different, and they are not only are different physically and mentally and emotionally, they're not only different in all those ways, there's intention in that different. He created them with purpose. You as a man, you have a purpose, and it's not feminine. And you as a, wo- as a woman, you have a purpose, and it's not masculine. Say, well, a woman can do anything a man can do. Well, first of all, no, they can't. And a man can't do anything that a woman can do either. I, I just can't pull off breastfeeding. I don't know about y'all. And none of you women, I don't think you can impregnate anybody. Right? We can't do all the same things. And even many of the things we can, maybe a woman can do, it doesn't mean she should. Can you, A screw and a nail are designed differently and they have different purposes. Can I take a screw and hammer it into a piece of wood? Yeah, but it's not very efficient and you're going to make a mess of things, aren't you? And can I maybe take a nail and twist it and twist it and twist it until I get it to go down in the wood a little bit? Yeah, but it's a waste of time. It's not what it's created for. Men and women are created different. 
for different purposes. And it's obvious if you have eyes that can see and a mind that can think. Amen. For man to fulfill the dominion mandate, he needed a she. He is perfectly built and designed to accomplish part of it, going out and conquering, rolling over and subduing. She is perfectly suited for keeping and tilling and beautifying. It's almost like God had intention in making the two different sexes. And that the man, being stronger and more able, he should protect and value the weaker woman because he can't do what she could do, but she is more vulnerable than he is and he should stand in front of it and defeat and destroy anything that threatens that valuable woman. Man, that's your job. I see all kinds of conservatives. Man, I'm just so... Isn't it great? All these women in the military know the Bible says it's a curse when your women are fighting your battles. That's what it says. I just happen to believe what God's Word says. It's a shame to you. So male and female. Is male or female created in the image of God? Yes. Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Herman Bovink says, he's a great reformed thinker, he says, women can be a helper suitable for the man only because she is equal and reflects God's image just as much as he does. It's different and together we fully reflect the image and glory of God. But the Bible absolutely refers to the female as the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3, 7. Women are smaller, they have less muscle, they're weaker, they're slower, and they're less durable. Well, that offends me. Sorry. So I know some women that are stronger than some men, yeah, and I know some dogs that are bigger than some horses, but horses are bigger than dogs, aren't they? And I'm not wrong to say that. Until very recent history, everyone knew men and women were created differently and had different purposes. What I'm saying just became controversial 15 minutes ago. But we must stress that although she's weaker, she's not less valuable. A delicate vase might be priceless where a hard anvil is pretty cheap to replace, but they both serve a purpose, don't they? The value is not determined on what's more durable or stronger because some things that are very weak and fragile are way more valuable than something that's hard and durable. And then we see the intention in the design. For, and uh, in the design for pursuit and marriage. Okay? Look at verse 5. Since God made them male and female, and when they wrote that, they still understood what that meant stronger and weaker. Different roles needed to be together, one's strong and one's weaker, one's to protect and one's to be protected. Since that's the case, he said, For this reason, since he made them male and female, the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Notice who who the lever here is. Who's leaving? It's the man. The man leaves father and mother. Does Does the woman leave father and mother? Do you see that? No. A woman doesn't leave father and mother. The man leaves his father and mother and is for a time on his own. Just like Adam was in the garden for a time on his own. Man can be on his own, away from mom and dad for a time, seeking a wife. Should the woman be uncovered and unprotected? No. Why? Because she's more, she, even though she's more valuable, maybe even more valuable, she's also more vulnerable. 
The woman is never to be on her own, uncovered, unprotected, and unprovided for. She's to be under her father's protection and guidance until, his, he, until he gives his authority and his responsibility over to a husband. You see it all the way through Scripture. We can deny it if we want to, but if we do, we just decide that we don't like the Bible anymore. Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 26.7 Take wives and begat sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they might bear sons and daughters that you might be increased there and not diminished. Exodus 22, 16-17 If a man entices a young virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price to, to be his wife, to her father. But if the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. But the father keeps her in his household. Who gets to make the decision? Oh, dad does. Well, well the daughter should be able to make her own decisions. I, I don't care what you think. I care what God's Word says. No, she shouldn't. Why? Because I'm, I know how the, my daughter's hearts might be turned towards some rebellious guy that's strong and a little bit cool with really nice hair and might get her heart. And Man, she, she go and run after him and then what is she in? She's in an awful marriage that she's yoked to him forever. Men, take seriously responsibility to make sure your daughters marry and they marry well. 1 Corinthians 7, 34-38, you say, well, you just quoted Old Testament verses. If any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin daughter, if she's past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, whatever man stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin daughter, does well. So he who gives her in marriage does well, but he that does not give her does even better. That was in view of the persecutions that were going on during 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when it was written. Alistair Begg says it this way, How do we expect our children who need help picking out socks just a few short years ago to now pick out a mate without our assistance? Yes, she's valuable, but she's vulnerable. She's more delicate and more fragile image bearer. She's more easily broken, and she's to be protected by men. And... To you closet feminists out there who might say, I don't need no man to save me. Well, I'll let Jesus know that. Right? I'll let Jesus know you don't need no man to save you. Yeah, you do. You do. And you say, well, that's Jesus. Jesus says that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That we're to image that in our marriages according to the design of God. He made them male and female and that if a male is to be a Christ figure who goes and takes a wife. From heaven he came and sought us. We now go and seek a bride and we take her and now we treasure her and we hold to her and we protect her. We are one with her. She matters to us. She's valuable and we don't want her broken. They had objectified women and made them assets. Jesus is saying they're not assets, they're image bearers. And a man wants to protect a woman, you've got it all wrong. You're looking for your liberty and what will make you happy. But what will make you holy is being the kind of man that will protect his one flesh union of his wife. The Hallels, they were loosing completely. And even the Shamites weren't binding enough. Jesus says what was that the church will return to the original created principles of God before there was even a fall. And whatever 
we bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. We've got to return back unashamedly and say, this is what God's Word says. Well, you sound like a bigot. You sound like a misogynist. You sound like one of those patriarchy guys. Yep. You know why? Because I believe this book from cover to cover and I'm not ashamed of it. And that that will be what will create order. We used to be a patriarchal society and the farther we've got away from it, look outside. This is what it produces when you reject the created order of God. You get chaos everywhere. He takes them back to the covenantal union. union verse 5. And be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus restates then in verse 6 what God said. So, okay, so look, look how seriously he takes God's Word. He quotes the Bible and be joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. And Jesus states exactly what God said. He restates it. So they're no longer two but one flesh. If God's Word says it, that's the way it is. He says, okay, it says this in Genesis 2, 23. So, what's the outcome? So they're no longer two but one flesh. And Jesus infers from that, 6b, what therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. He's saying since God created the sexes differently and since they need one another to fully image God and to fulfill the dominion mandate and since man is stronger and women are weaker, God forbid that he do that like the school of Hillel suggests and view her like property. In marriage, God takes these two corresponding parts and he makes them one in a way that we cannot even completely fathom. Do you know that through sexual union that when, when a man and a woman come together that the woman's body is changed forever, especially if a child is produced, that the genetic material that was in the child actually stays with the woman long after the child's born, that they are actually a transformation in the woman's body from the production of a child? How does that happen? Because God makes them one flesh. There's a transformation that takes place, mystical and above our comprehension. And we see Paul go to Genesis 2, 24 also. Turn to Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. We're almost done. He tells us husbands. Very familiar text. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Instead of worrying about when they can end the marriage, they need to worry about how to love their wives, how they can lead them, washing them with the water of the Word. You don't like your wife? You find some uncleanness in her? Remember, if you find some uncleanness in her and you give her a bill of divorcement, what does Paul say the remedy is if you find uncleanness in her? Wash her with the water of the Word. You, you should have washed... You don't like your wife. You've been married to her 10 years and you don't like her. You should have washed better. Say, so my, my wife's not my responsibility. Read your Bible. Yes, she is. You're the failure here. 
You don't like your wife? Look in the mirror. Grow up and be a man. Learn how to lovingly lead. Learn how to point her to the Word of God. Learn how to pray for her and pray with her. It's your duty. We're to love her as her own bodies because it's not good for man to be alone and God has made us one with that woman and with her together as we are sanctified we can fully image God in the masculine and the feminine. Instead of running from your duty to where the grass is greener, water the grass. Grass ain't always... If the grass is greener on the other side, somebody watered that grass better than you've watered yours. It's your fault! Jesus is saying, be committed to your wife. He made them male and female. She's an image bearer. She's weaker than you. She needs what you provide. And He's joined you with her and you've got an obligation to her forever. You can't just cut off part of your own body. Mary Daly, a feminist scholar, once quipped, the Bible is hopelessly patriarchal. She was right. You know that? She was right. It is. Now, we can try to explain to the, anybody that reads it and tries to pretend that it's not. We can try, no, 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 you're reading it wrong. Guys, they've got eyes. They know how to read. What we need to do is say, yeah, you're right, and stop apologizing for it. Stop. It says what it says. If people don't like it, or if we don't like it, it's not the Bible that's the problem. It's us in society. If you don't like patriarchy, you're going to hate the Bible. Start reading it more and you'll know exactly what I mean. And my last point. When shamed for being too far right, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He owns it and he goes even farther right. Doesn't he? They're trying to corner him into being a Shamite. And he goes farther than their restriction and says, if you go back to how God intended things to be before there was any sin in the world, there would be no divorce at all. That's what he does. The Pharisees thought they had shamed him for being of the Shammai tradition, and Jesus goes farther than they did. This one flesh metaphor makes marriage indissoluble. It, 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 it's, it'd be a sort of violence, like mutilation or amputation or dismemberment. The breaking apart of a single body. And consider that this union is not a mere matter of human decision or some social institution. If it's God, it, it's God who did the cementing, isn't it? What, who joined together? They became one flesh and what God joined together. So it's not for humans to try to undo it. It might even be argued that it's impossible, that there's something ontological about this one flesh union which no human decision can destroy. But the argument here is expressed not in terms of what can't happen, but what must not happen. Let not man separate. To break up marriage is to attempt to undo the work of God. Let's be like Jesus here. That when we're shamed for being too far right, don't him haul around. Don't be embarrassed. Like all these politicians that do. Oh, I've heard you have some very anti-LGBTQ. Are you against gay marriage? Yep. I'm against sodomy of all sorts all the time. I'm against sexual perversion of every sort. Not only am I against gay marriage, I'm, I believe that the sodomy laws that used to be on the books until 15 minutes ago were absolutely right. That that will lead to the destruction of society. That it destroys, it destroys human souls. That it carries people straight into the pits of hell. 
I believe that marriage should be between one man and one woman, that a man has a role and a woman has a role, and that men should be leaders in society, and that women should be able to keep the home and raise many, many children, and that that's the primary way that God says that He'll save women through sanctifying them is in the bearing of children. You say, wow, you sound like some sort of bigot. No, we return. We don't, we don't be ashamed. Everything I just quoted to you, whether it hits our modern sensibilities funny or not, is exactly what God's Word says, and we need to stop being ashamed of it. And say, well, you know, people just ought to be able to do whatever they want to do. No, if a man is caught lying with a man, what does the Bible say? Well, you can't quote that Scripture. Guys, we've got to get out of our mind. We can't quote that Scripture. And we've got to be like Jesus, who's unashamed of the Word of God. Well, they might kill you. They did Him. They did Him. As the Christianity progressed, you've been more and more able to say God's truth with less consequences. As it regresses, there'll be more consequences. The reason that it's regressing, though, is because we've not wielded the powerful Word of God unashamedly. We've not went out and did what Jesus told us to do. In Matthew 10, 26, Therefore do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in darkness, speak into the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Do you know why we can be forgiven for our cowardice? Our cowardice. You know why? We can be forgiven because Jesus was never a coward. We can be forgiven because Jesus was unashamed of God's truth where we've been ashamed of God's truth. That when we've been put on the spot like this and tested to see whether we'll stand on God's Word or whether we'll hem-haw around and backtrack, we've looked down at the ground and shuffled our feet, made excuses and said things like, oh, you know, who am I to judge? We've done all that stuff. Jesus didn't do any of that stuff once. And yeah, they killed Him for it. But in that, He was our sinless sacrifice. You want to be forgiven? Look to Him. He's all we've got. He, for, he is our pardon for where we've been cowards, where we've been ashamed of His Word, where we've not only not conformed to it, but been unwilling to even admit we believe it and stand on it. He is our only hope of pardon. But don't just be satisfied with the pardon. He tells y'all, observe all things whatsoever I've commanded. Repent of your cowardice. Stand up unashamedly and go back to saying, this is what God's Word says, and whatever He has bound on earth, I'll bind on earth. Whatever He's loosed on earth. And have a positive vision. Don't just stop giving up more ground. Start saying, no, this is where we need to be. Way back in things, battles we lost 200 years ago. We were wrong to give it up then, and we're getting it back. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. We win. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father of God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for telling us what will lead to a prosperous and blessed society. But Lord, we also thank you that we came short of that. We live in a society that hates your word right now. That it's become more and more uh, unfashionable to stand on all the things you've revealed in your word. And that increasingly we're hated for those things. And that we've been tempted and fallen to the temptations of being ashamed of your word. God, we thank you that you never were ashamed of the truth and that you stood on the truth to the point of being willing to give your life. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you died to pay for our sins. We trust in that. God, help us. Forgive us of our sins, of our shortcomings, of our cowardice, and also conform us to your image. Make us like you. And Lord, give us the victory that you've promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. In Jesus' name we pray.